They've been sitting there around the table for some time now. Ten elders, one minister. They were still on number one on the agenda. And it was really starting to cause some tension. It was one of those big issues. One of those issues about mission. One of those issues about the future of the church. One of those issues that the kingdom of God relies upon maybe more than any other in church life. Would they get rid of those old green sets of crockery for something a bit more funky? <laughs> and you? Well, the minister knew it was time for new crockery. Those cups didn't really fit much liquid and the kind of sauces were all chipped. And he was desperate to bring in a motion to move towards new mugs. But unfortunately, the treasurer had gathered the other elders around him and was really, really, really keeping them on side. And, and sure enough, the minister got desperate and called for a vote. And yes, as he asked for who would vote for new crockery, he found himself with the only hand in the air in the whole room. As he asked for who was happy with the old green crockery, ten hands went up. There was a shake at the floor, started to rumble, the pillars in the church started to move. It was almost as though the, the ceiling was starting to rattle. It was rattling, there was suddenly a crack, a shaft of light. Suddenly you could hear angels and choirs of angels singing and suddenly in this beam of light descending was this figure in white, blazing like the sun. Could this be our Lord himself, the King of Kings, come into their midst? Well, Jesus did descend into the middle of the room and he spoke to the elders, saying, Thus saith me, I want new mugs. <laughs> With that, the smoke disappeared and the angel stopped singing and the floor and the ceiling stopped rattling and shaking and he ascended once more through the gap in the ceiling and everything was restored to calm. No one knew who to speak and there was a silence, a kind of reverent hush and... Then the treasurer stepped forward, saying, I see his point, but it's ten votes to two. We're keeping the green ones. <laughs> you see, it's a true story. I was there. <laughs> or I've been in some meetings like it. I don't know about you, but at weeks like this, I take great comfort in the failings of my brothers and sisters. It makes me feel a whole lot better about my own personal discipleship. Just to look at some of the other losers that God puts around the church makes me feel so much more committed to him. It's why I love preaching on Peter, particularly Peter in the Gospels. You know, uh, we uh, got it a bit in the big start this week. My son Joe came to the big start on the day when every time the name of Peter was mentioned, everyone had to shout out, don't be silly, Peter. But of course, in the Gospels, he usually is. You can guarantee that Peter will be silly. That's his role. I don't like preaching so much on Peter and Acts because it seems to me that there's some kind of transformation in between the Gospel and Acts. Somehow Peter finds some kind of first century phone box and manages to pull his apostolic underpants up over his trousers. 
and become some kind of super church leader and suddenly the don't be silly phrase goes out the window and he becomes everybody's hero. In fact, he becomes an impossible act for any member of the church to follow ever again. I know this because I I was part of a church planting team about 15 years ago in the place in London where I still live today and, and we decided we would plant our church around an act kind of principle and vision and theory and formula and theology and so everything we did we took directly from the book of Acts expecting that we would see exactly the same results and we didn't. It's a great church, it's a lovely church, I love being part of it, it's a fantastic church, but it didn't quite live up to our expectations, and we certainly didn't manage to follow Peter. But once again, I feel a lot better, because I tried and failed, but I have other friends who tried something similar, and failed even worse than I did. (laughs) My friend Chris, for instance, he moved to an inner city housing estate, and uh, he moved with a group of young people, they were going to make a difference in the urban ghetto, in the urban jungle. And he was determined to see these miracles. He was determined to see those acts like occurrences. He was determined to see those kind of Pentecostal outpourings of God's spirit on the whole community. And the day he moved in, he moved into a two-up, two-down terrace kind of cottage. And uh, Chris was making a big sacrifice with his life. He was moving to a tough place. But he was taking along some resources to help him in his sacrifice. So like many young men, he had all the toys that money could buy. He had, you know, the big flat screen TV and the the PlayStation and the great hi-fi and the DVD and everything you could ever wish for. Well, Chris, being a, a very busy church planter, only had time to kind of move his stuff in. He didn't have time to settle in. He had meetings, he had people to see, he had school's work to do. And so on the morning he moved in, he just chucked it all in the lounge and then he ran off to his next meeting. When he came back later that day, he found that someone had broken into his house and stolen absolutely everything. He thought, well, welcome to Urban Mission and my new Acts experience of church planting. He thought, well, I am not going to be, I'm not going to be besieged, I'm not going to be downcast. I'm, I'm, I'm going to do the right thing. And the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to check out with the neighbours whether anyone saw them so I can catch these scumbags <laughs> and administer forgiveness, obviously, to them for their crime. Also, I'm anxious that the neighbours know that there are burglars in this area and they should be careful and lock their doors. He knocked on the door next door and there was no response. He knocked again and there was no response. He knocked and the door slightly gave way. It was at this point, being rather brilliant, he worked out the door was in fact open. (laughs) He walked into the house. No one there. Walked through the hall into the lounge and there in front of him was his flat screen TV and his PlayStation. And his nice, everything he owned was there. At which point the owner of the house came in and he said, what are you doing with my stuff? To which the guy replied, I don't know, and ran out. He tried to make the kind of miracle happen, and it didn't happen in the way that any of us expected. I want to encourage those of you for whom the book of Acts and Peter's various miraculous adventures has a kind of bruiser feeling of inadequacy within us. You see, these first 12 chapters of Acts are are amazing chapters. There is fantastic stuff going on. Pentecost, 3,000 saved in one day. The healed, crippled beggar. Peter facing down the Sanhedrin. Meeting Paul, who was Saul, who's become a Christian. As we heard last night, the conversion of Cornelius. There's all these miracles. But for those of you who are thinking that's the way your church should be locally, I do need to point out that it didn't all happen on one day. 
I mean, it wasn't that he got up in the morning and Pentecost happened, then after morning coffee, 3,000 Christians, then afterwards he healed a and so on and so on, and just before tea, he shared the gospel with Cornelius. The first 12 chapters of Acts take 10 years. It's a long period of time. Kind of begs the question what else they were doing during those 10 years. I suspect Ruth gave us a, a hint in her sermon. I suspect, like all of us, they were working out how to be followers of Jesus in their ordinary day lives, watching CBeebies. <laughs> Trying to follow Jesus in the day-to-day, in their ordinariness, in their brokenness. There are some ancient manuscripts that are extant, they're not part of the biblical canon, that suggest there was even quite a lot of time devoted to discussions, theological treatises in fact, on uh, what kind of church crockery would be most appropriate for (laughs) this new religious group. Between chapters 10 and 12 though, things start to take a kind of fairly serious turn between night four and five in Spring Harvest Talk. Between these two stories of Cornelius on one hand and this situation that the Lacey Theatre Company acted so beautifully for us beforehand. Ten years after Jesus' ascension, there's many questions around the church. Is, is he really coming back? If so, when's he coming back? There was a theory that he might come back around Passover time. If so, Passover is coming. Is it going to be this Passover? Is he coming back at all? Is he really the Messiah? And recent events make things even worse. James is dead. Peter is in prison. The other apostles have gone into hiding. Following Cornelius' conversion, Herod has James killed with a sword. And now Peter, the church leader, in prison, presumably awaiting a death sentence as well. And you can imagine the pain, the frustration of this new church family. After such a promising start, following Jesus, filled with the Spirit, reaching the Gentiles, and now under a kind of mortal threat. Now there's a church that I can relate to. It's not not a case that any of us are probably in danger of martyrdom in the next few days. But I think we've realized as we've talked this weekend, we live at a critical time in the life of the church in this nation and in the Western world. The future of the church is very much up for grabs in these days. And if we are to see the church really become the people of God in the 21st century that we believe God has called us to be, We're going to need to reinvent ourselves, reimagine ourselves, recreate ourselves. And last night we talked about some of those dreams that you already have. To do just that, to go home and to reinvent the church in your community, in your context, to extend the fellowship of the church, the mission of the church, the work and the ministry of the church where you're at. And having responded last night and stuck those post-it notes on the cross or received prayer or prayed with the person next to you, some of us have spent today thinking, I'm not sure I can go with it. I'm not sure I can go through with this dream. 
I fear what will happen, not if this dream doesn't come true. I fear what will happen if this dream does come true. If I go back and start doing this, if I go back and start provoking that, if I go back and start changing the other, where will it take me? What will happen? How much damage will I end up doing? A friend of mine um, was a, is a youth worker and uh, he was contacted by a church elder, not one of the elders I mentioned in the first story, um, contacted by an elder who, who was really worried about um, uh, a, um, a young person in the church who had kind of drifted out of church life and really wasn't coming back to church anymore. And this elder was kind of the world's most unlikely youth evangelist, but he really felt that he should be doing something to reach this 15-year-old. And so he phoned my friend, the youth worker, and said, can you, can you give me some advice? And my friend said, well, wh why don't you just invite him to church, for starters? So he thought, I can do that. So he invited him to church. I couldn't believe his eyes. The next Sunday, this kid was at church. And he sat at church, but he was kind of on the edge. He didn't seem very interested in what was going on. And so my friend was phoned again, and the elder said, look, I'm, I'm really worried. You know, he, he came, but he, he didn't seem engaged with church. And, and my, my friend said, well, I, he used to play a musical instrument, didn't he? I think, I think you, can't you get him into the, in the worship band? And the elder thought, okay. So he went to the guy and said, look, would you, next Sunday, would you like to play in the band? And he couldn't believe his eyes. Next Sunday, he turns up on time, and he's ready to play in the worship band. But the elder's now a bit concerned because this is a Salvation Army church and uh, we like to kind of dress smart as the one true people of God. And, um, <laughs> and uh, so, you know, there's uniforms and stuff and everyone's kind of in the same thing and it's all kind of looking very pristine. But then there's this kind of rather sloppy hoodie-wearing teenager in the middle of the worship band. And so the elder goes up to him and says, I'm not asking you to become a Christian. I know you need time to think this through. I'm not asking you to become a church member, but I'm loving the fact you're playing with the band. And I just wonder next week, could you wear something that would blend in a bit more? They're all wearing the Salvation Army uniform. You don't have to wear one of those, but just something a bit dark, maybe. Well, next week, the greatest surprise was yet to come. He arrived at church and the guy was in the band again and there he was. In black trousers, in black shoes, a black jumper. He dyed his hair black. <laughs> he was wearing black mascara <laughs> and black nail varnish. He'd become a goth. <laughs> Another conversion, fantastic story, praise the Lord. It's absolutely true. And some of us are thinking, if we go back and put some of those dreams into reality, actualize some of those visions we had yesterday, it could cause huge trouble. It's going to upset people. It's going to hurt people. It could end up breaking the church in different ways. I don't want to do that. But the truth is, there comes a time in certain generations, certain critical times in the history of the church, when for the church to be the church, to be God's people, we have to be prepared to break some stuff. We have to be prepared to break certain things which have just become meaningless religious rituals which are getting in the way of our calling to be God's people. We have to break with some things from the past. We have to break into the tradition of the church to be what it means to be the church so that we can break open the church for new people. 
who don't yet know about Jesus. Like that young guy in the worship band. I'm a member of the Salvation Army and um, I grew up in the Salvation Army and I have many fantastic memories of the opportunities that that gave me. One of the funniest ones happened when our Salvation Army band was 100 years old. And, uh, and we'd been proclaiming the gospel on the streets of our town for 100 years. And in the early days, these guys had literally gone to prison for their open-air evangelistic ministry. So 100 years later, our Salvation Army church wanted to sort of mark this. And we decided to have a, a special march and recreate the past and march along the seafront. I grew up in a seafront seaside town and march into the center of the town and once again proclaim the gospel. And as we marched along the seafront, it was a beautiful day and thousands of people watching and we marched into the town center and again thousands of people watching. And we were all set for this dramatic reenactment of the Salvation Army proclaiming the gospel on the streets. And a Salvation Army band has a very particular way of coming to the end of the march. The end of the march goes something like this. You just march left, right, left, right, left, right. That's how it ends. And at the front of the march was the most proud member of our band. He, he never learned to play an instrument, but he carried the flag, big sort of 10-foot Salvation Army flag. And then with hundreds, possibly thousands of people in the centre of the town, as we came to a stop, left, right, left, right, left, right, the elastic in his trousers snapped. <laughs> and his trousers fell to his ankles, revealing a pair of white boxer shorts with red polka dots. <laughs> What's more, he's carrying a 12-foot flag. What can he do about this? <laughs> so the guys behind offer up their trombones unto the Lord and do rugby tackle him and hoisting his trousers so they can cover up his witness. <laughs> In my church, for me, the dream is to find a way to cut us free from religious rituals which have sometimes become meaningless and often ineffective to prize open, break open the tradition which is the Salvation Army and find a new way of being that part of the people of God in this world. Back in Acts 12, the church faces an even more uncertain future than we do here. Herod has put James to death and Peter is in prison. Herod, the so-called king of the Jews, he maintains a delicate hold on power. He's a kind of sop to the Romans on one side, keeping the Pax Romana, keeping the peace, making sure that none of these kind of Jewish insurrectionists kill too many Roman soldiers. And on the other hand, he's a kind of observant Jew, trying to keep the Pharisees and other Jews on board by saying, look, I'm a Jew and I'm really the king around here, so you've got nothing to worry about. The kingdom's here, the kingdom's safe with me. And what's happened is that the Pharisees and the Jews have come to Herod and said, look, look what these Jews are doing now. They are extending their fellowship to Gentiles. They've had what they call a Gentile Pentecost. The Spirit of God is supposed to have come on Gentiles. They're opening their doors to Gentiles. They're sharing food and table fellowship with Gentiles. This will not do. And you notice in this passage that we don't see Peter standing up and saying, excuse me, can you let me out? I'm, I'm a Jew. I'm still a Jew. He's not claiming to have started a new religion or anything. He's still a Jew. 
You can't, you can't put him in prison for being a Jew. And yet Herod puts him in prison for apostasy. That's why he kills James. That's why James gets killed with a sword. Because he's apostate. Because he's breaking Israel. He's breaking the rules of Judaism. He's breaking what it means to be the people of God. He's mucking around. He's fraternizing with Gentiles and that won't do. And yet Peter does not protest. Why doesn't Peter protest? Because Peter knows that this is exactly what they're meant to be doing. Because Peter knows that Israel is defined as a light to the Gentiles, not just a light to other Israelites. That was always the purpose of the Israel nation. And he knows that his friend Jesus personified himself as Israel. He said, I am the light of the Gentiles. I am the light of the world. And what's more, he said to them, these disciples, these few guys, now you are the light of the world. Now go forth and shine a light to every part of this world and know that there is one God and all people can be his people. And so Peter won't back down because he knows what's going on here isn't breaking Israel, it's breaking into Israel and it's breaking open Israel's God to the whole world. And then Herod makes a huge mistake because it's Passover. He can't kill Peter like he killed James. You can't do that on the Passover. The Pharisees would go nuts. And so... He says, just hold him in prison for a few days. It's a fatal mistake for Herod. Costs him his life. He dies in the next chapter. It's a fateful mistake. A fateful opportunity for Peter and the church. Because it does three things. It gives Peter a stay of execution. It gets the church praying. That meeting probably went for two to three days. And it gives God the opportunity to perform this huge miracle and confirm that these people are really the people of God. About 10 years ago, I read a bunch of books by a guy from a Jewish background called Douglas Rushkoff. He's an expert on media. He's a professor at New York University. And I was just blown away by his understanding. And I really wanted to meet him. And I I was in America working and I I wondered whether I could see him. But I figured he's a very famous guy in his field and he must have loads of people trying to get time. So I thought, I've I've got to get his attention. And I found a, 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 a website where you could actually send an email to him. And so I sent this email. Dear Douglas, my name's Russell. I work for the Salvation Army. Will you help me change the world? And he wrote back and said, you sound like a bit of a nutter. What do you want? And I wrote back and said, I'd just like to take you for lunch. Lots of love, nutter. (laughs) And so we met up in New York and we had a great conversation. And I said to him, you describe yourself on your website and in all your books as an agnostic Jew. What do you mean an agnostic Jew? He said, well, I... I'd like to be an atheist, but I I just, I can't get away from the story. I can't get away from the story. And of course, he only meant one story. He meant the story of the Exodus. 
Because that's the story that defines Israel to this day. That's the story of not only their being chosen by God, but saved by God to be his people. If you watch the films of Steven Spielberg, in virtually every one, you see the story of the Exodus in different ways. Saving Private Ryan, Prince of Egypt, Schindler's List. If you're an Israelite, the story of the Exodus defines you and you celebrate that story every year at Passover. A thousand years before Acts 12, Peter's ancestors broke bread together as prisoners in Egypt in anticipation that God would do a miracle and set them free and so that God could identify them and say, those guys there, those guys praying and eating together, those guys praying for a miracle, they're my guys. Ten years before, Peter's friend Jesus gathered them for one final meal together to celebrate Passover and once again took bread and identified himself as the Messiah and anticipated the miracle of his own death and resurrection and put upon these guys the fact that they were now God's chosen people who would take his gospel to the ends of the world. And just as the old Exodus happens in the book of Exodus, in the New Testament we see a new Exodus as Jesus sets his people free in the Easter story. And now here in Acts 12, it's Passover again. And this new church filled with questions, wrapped in doubt, facing its greatest time of testing with a leader in prison and fearing for their very lives. Eats and prays together once again. And after two to three days of praying, what happens? Another exodus. An exodus for the church. With the church's leader delivered in the most miraculous way. And in the most powerful way possible, the reenactment of that miracle, God says... I identify these people, the ones who pray and anticipate that I will do a miracle for them and deliver them. I identify these people as my people. And as you see, it's a kind of broken scenario. Peter, once again, to have a miracle in his life, has to fall asleep first and go through it in an unconscious state. (laughs) Not that impressive after all, maybe. And his church don't even recognise him when he comes to the door and think he might be an angel or a ghost. But that's not the point. The point is that these ordinary broken people with all their hopes and dreams are identified by God as his chosen people. I was in a meeting about nine months ago And a guy was sharing about human trafficking and how, as an organisation, we're struggling to respond not only to the size of the need but to the complexities of the problem. And it was very challenging because he said that actually we're so broken as an organisation and as a church that sometimes our response to these broken people is just not good enough. But he didn't know what else to do. And another leader around the table was desperate. The conversation was uncomfortable. He was desperate to kind of move it on. He said, I have to say, we can't mend brokenness with brokenness. And I'm so sorry. 
Because I should have screamed. I should have shouted. I should have said, no! You've just missed the point of the gospel. Because God mends the world by sending his son. And as his son celebrates the Passover, he takes his bread and he breaks it in two and says, this is my body broken for you. Broken people mend the world. Broken people in the book of Acts. Broken people sitting in the big top are God's plan to fix a messed up universe. And God looks down on us tonight as we sing and pray and dance, as we fear what the future might hold, as we fear what might happen if we really do what he's asking us to do. He looks down on us and says, this is my body, broken for the world, that they might know that there is one God, the maker of heaven and earth. His name is Jesus. And he died for creation. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you. We've learned so much about what it means to be your people this week. And with a mixture of excitement and terror, we prepare to go home. And we just ask that you would increase our confidence and courage to know that we can break open the church, that we can break free from religious ritual and meaningless repetition, that we can break into what it means to be the people of God and break open the church for the whole world so that this world knows you. Please answer prayer.